Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Head of Sky's Performance Hub, Scott Draw. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Valve Performance, makes of the Nordboard. So if you haven't heard of the Nordboard already, don't worry, I'll explain, it's pretty simple. So the Nordboard is a fast and accurate way to measure hamstring strength. So as you know, practitioners can do very little about athlete age and previous hamstring injury. What they can do something about is the athlete's strength. So that's where the Nordboard comes into play giving you real-time hamstring strength readings to enhance training, monitoring, and rehabilitation. It isn't going to make your athlete's hamstrings bulletproof, but what it is going to do is give you the right information so you, the practitioner, can make the right decision at the right time. The Nordboard is now available, so if you're interested in finding out a little bit more, you can email info at valveperformance.com or visiting valveperformance.com. The Nordboard is already in use by almost half the Premier League and dozens of other elite teams worldwide. So the Nordboard hamstring testing system is the new standard for high performance sport. Thanks for tuning in to episode 75 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today we've got Scott Draw, who was recently taken up a role as Head of Sky's Performance Hub. So as you can imagine, uh, we are discussing his, his new role. Uh, and his previous roles with uh, England Rugby and UK Sport. So we discussed the use of technology in sport, uh, research and innovation. We discussed building a team um, from his, well, delving into his background um, as a head of department at, at both them uh, previous jobs. So we get his insight into, into recruitment, uh, which was great, which we haven't really tapped into um, so far in the podcast. So thanks for tuning in to episode 75. Again, appreciate any feedback. Uh, and Scott mentions that right at the end. If you've got any feedback for him, uh, please fire it his way, whether that be on Twitter uh, or directly on his email, which he gives out at the end. If you are enjoying the podcast, um, I'd really appreciate if you jumped over to iTunes uh, and left an honest rating and review. Uh, it goes a long way to expose the podcast to other people so that people can uh, listen and hopefully enjoy it. So let me know what you think to the, the episode with Scott uh, and I'll speak to you soon. Okay, hi guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So just before I introduce Scott Draw onto the podcast, I just want to uh, give a big thanks to someone that's almost become my agent over the last couple of months in Chris Toombs for, for making this connection once again. Um, so. Just before I get Scott in to give him, uh, get us to give him a uh, as a uh, introduction on himself, I just want to thank him for his time on a on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, so thanks a lot, Scott, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rob. I really appreciate it. So, do you want to give us a little bit of an introduction um, on your background, uh, your education, what you're currently doing? Yeah. So, um, well, I'm three weeks into a new role with Sky and Team Sky, working on, um, I guess, a concept 
and a, a sort of virtual human performance institute. Um, it's hard to say what it's going to be yet because we're still early days. So I mean, hopefully that'll that'll become a, a lot more public knowledge as you know as it sort of evolves. But hopefully a network that everyone from art, music, sport can tap into with some real expertise harnesses the very best of British science, medicine, engineering and tech and business and you know all those great things and great people that people sometimes just want to get access to. Um, prior to that, um, uh, previous two years working with England Rugby, so I um, sort of headed up a number of science and medicine teams across the men's player pathway with women's and sevens and then appeared before that really from, from early 2000 really up to past London. I, I worked in the British Olympic system with UK Sport and EIS and I'm, I helped develop and grow our research innovation program which is really about working with sports um, in a project-based way trying to solve problems that they presented to us with the very best of science, medicine, engineering and tech, um, but also bring new ideas to them and things that have gone on in the industry that could potentially make a difference to to their journeys, to their individual athlete journeys really as they headed into major tournaments and major events. So that, that's, that's predominantly my history. I um, studied at Loughborough, did my PhD there in, in injury risk, um, first degrees at Brunel and teaching degree at Nottingham, so really, really varied background. Probably the way I sort of describe myself is a is an expert generalist um, with this cast and network of thousands who who are real specialists and expertise in what they do, and, and that's where my sort of career has got to. Cool. So one thing I wanted to um, kind of start off with was the the research and innovation innovation um, kind of head of yours. So it was just from my kind of uh, a lot of these questions are very selfish that I ask in the podcast and. I kind of figure out that if I am interested in it, I'm hoping and guessing that other people are. So it was just the the uh, the journey from kind of a problem being presented to you, um, whether it be a, something that can be solved with technology or, or other means, and the kind of research that goes in behind that to actually hopefully solve that problem from your side, from kind of a management point of view, if that yeah. awful makes any sense. Yeah, and, and if, I, if I go right back to the start of, I guess, of the journey and the process, when when I sort of when when I am ended up in a sort of role around research innovation tech, as it was, it was it was really early days in the British system, so the EIS actually didn't exist at that time. Um, so really, in those early days, we spent a lot of time trying to scope the network and the landscape, going to a lot of places that existed in UK, meeting people, in some ways doing a bit of a talent identification of expertise. So what we're trying to do is build this network and toolbox, if you call it, of, of experts, of people that have quite unique skills who maybe haven't previously worked in sport that we could call on when problems evolve. So that, that was an ongoing, constant process. And, um, you know, we would, we would contract experts on small projects just to test them out. You know, how, how good were they? Could they adapt? Could they work in sport? You know, and gradually we built this, I guess, built this network that, that enabled us to, I guess, rapid respond um, where sports would come to us uh, and ask particular questions. And we already knew there were networks of people that we could bring together. The best analogy is a bit like the, the conductor of an orchestra. In some way, that's the way we worked. We, we were the conductor, sports, the audience. They come in and say, look, this, this is a problem I think we have. And we work with them using particular skills to make sure that was the problem they had. 
to really get it quite defined and then put the orchestra together of the right expertise. So whether that's specialists in textiles and aerodynamics in you know, human sciences and metabolism and like create these, these teams that were virtual but also face-to-face at particular times that would work together over periods of time to solve a problem presented to us and then disband. And they may be working on multiple projects at once. We had lots of orchestras playing particular types of music. So that was a sort of analogy. But it, it was constant talent ID and confirmation of, of technical expertise. And, and we'd act as that bridge with the sport, knowing that there were various individuals that we could work with at any point in time to try to solve those problems. So it was, um, yeah, it was an ongoing process. It grew from a team of two to a team of 14 that had a cast of thousands. You know, and in effect, we created different work streams relative to the demands of sport that just grew organically over time you know what if i look back now 03 04 05 06 i'd never planned for it to end up like it did it just meant the needs of sports and the questions being asked meant we ended up with this i guess theme of work around product technology bikes boats paddles um, we ended up with a theme of work of which is traditionally now been known as big data where there were questions around how to measure things in the field. It meant, you know, miniature electronics and hardware. It meant wireless telemetry. It meant software. It meant end-user displays. It meant databasing. It meant feedback. It meant all of those things, which are ultimately about designing and changing skills uh, in the field. We ended up with a stream of work that we call training science, where, you know, fundamentally we're going to ask questions about the training process. How can I, you know, what, and that was everything related to, you know, training order, training recovery, you know, all those types of things. And then a stream of work we end up calling athlete health, which fundamentally was about trying to work with sports to give athletes days back to training. Um, you know, and that, that language was, was, um, was developed by a guy called Glenn Hunter, who headed up the athlete health team. But it was a great concept around just trying to think if we can give days back, you know, you'll develop and adapt, which is really fundamentally what's about. So, we had these streams of work and just people working across in a matrix way, just trying to solve problems, but, but equally try to present new ideas and ways of, of solving problems they didn't even know they had, um, but, but creating those relationships that enabled us to move quite quickly. So that, that was the essence of it. It, it was really organic. It, it was constantly moving. Um, it, was, it was like a speedboat in some ways where you know, it wasn't a super tank. We could react really, really quickly because over time we built this network across GB and international of academics, of industrial specialists that were just ready to go. So I'm going to put you on the spot now and just ask you if you had um, a cool example of something you mean by taking it, te- taking that journey through from initial to completion. Yeah, I mean, I think as a, as a team we were really fortunate to work with British Cycling in the early days around what became known as the Secret Squirrel Club. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's probably the most unsecret club there ever is. <laughs> you can Google it. But, but in effect, it was a, um, a, an early attempt, and probably Great Britain were the first to do it, to really have a, a really good look at aerodynamics in cycling because it's the biggest resistive force. Now, um, you know, historically, nations had tried to do odd bits and things in, in an ad hoc way. We took a real serious approach to it, recruited really good experts in aero and textiles and material science and manufacture and just went for it in a really big way. Um, you know, an over four year period, particularly from Athens into Beijing, you know, ended up really understanding those forces which slow athletes down at exceptionally high speeds. You know, um, from athlete positioning to clothing to bike design, um, and then that repeated going into London as 
well and is going to go on again into Rio. So that, that's, that was one of the biggest bits of work. But by doing that, we could take the knowledge and apply it to winter sport. So you learn so much about that process. You're suddenly able to work with skeleton in a really quick way going into the winters two years later after our Summer Olympic Games and then to bobsleigh and then to snowboard cross um, and then transfer that knowledge to rowing, you know, into canoeing and various other bits. So often one sport and cycling with a real innovator here and we were trying to support them really pushed the boundaries and in our role, you know, sitting in the helicopter, we could we could transfer and translate that knowledge and application really quickly. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So is there any industry or sector that you've kind of not expected to, to delve into with to, to solve these problems in sport, but has ended up being a, a real success story? Um, well, I, one of the most difficult industries to get access to was Formula One. Um, like, oh, more than 80% of Formula One engineers are British. And we have this this space in, in the UK called Motorsport Valley, where most of the teams and, and all the industry is based. So it was always a challenge of how do you get into that environment um, and how do you get into those types of places? Because um, you think they're, you know, you absolutely believe that they're a cutting edge and they're, they're going to places where nobody else is going. So um, actually what we found go, going into that, of course it blows you away what's possible and a lot of it would never work in an Olympic sport. But just at some of the people we met and there's one individual, particularly Caroline Hargrove at McLaren was just asked really good questions all the time in such a smart way that it would just make you really think about what you were doing. So we, we had a, a great example at the time. There's one of the coaches for the team pursuit. And, you know, when the cycling around the velodrome, which everybody would have seen, she was just asking questions about the particular order of riders and how they changed like they did. And, and just the coaches at the time just took a step back and it really thought about they, the way they trained. So you're going in there looking at something particular and something else came out of it. Um, and that, that, made them really think about the process of what they're doing and that's moved on since then so that was a you know gave us a sort of just just the quality of people their ability to you know even though they're specialists in their own field they would look at your world very very differently and ask the types of questions which you took for granted and that was always part of the process that we were trying to create create that type of environment where people felt comfortable to be challenged and felt comfortable where they could fail and fail fast Pixar talk about this, you know, if you can fail fast and learn from your lessons and move on, it, you know, it, it's, it's the competitive advantage you're looking for. And, um, you know, by working with some sports and, and other industries and related worlds, you could create that environment where failing fast was accepted and it meant you could move on really quickly. So have you been on the flip side of that when you've been brought into an industry that you're not familiar with and you've been, you've been put forward to kind of ask them, them questions? Yeah, it, it, it sort of happens naturally okay. um, because we're constantly looking at engaging with related worlds, as, as I call them, like just these just places that you wouldn't normally go to, to be honest. So, so motorsports, there's some similarities, but you get into America's Cup. We, we created a relationship once with um, – uh, um, I'm just trying to name it. Was it Warburton the Breadmaker? They have a like a, an innovation department, and we met up these guys once at a conference and they were just really intrigued in what we're doing and they were looking at creative ways and new food technology and they just wanted us to come in and look what they're doing so you just it's fun you know it's great fun because you're in some ways you're out of your comfort zone but also they're in a position where they're really accepting of your what you're seeing because they're so used to seeing what they see so yeah that was fun you know so you just designed the bread yeah 
he's learning a different loaf of bread. But they were, you know, they were, it just amazes you about the, what they were looking for. You know, they, they, they family owned business, but deliberately had an innovation department and they worked with their industry and business to move it on. Um, it was, yeah, it just mind blows you sometimes how, what, what people are trying to do to continue to develop their business. So when I was um, when I was stalking your Twitter feed last night, just came across. I'm not some well, I am some sort of weirdo, I think, but um, that's fine. Um, but uh, it came across a couple of tweets that uh, mentioned Google and how yeah. they kind of um, manage and and run their well manage their staff basically. Yeah. Um, have you been involved in um, the kind of the, the real business, the kind of hardcore business end of things? Um, in in your kind of relationship building along the way, um, not we've obviously linked with as you know as part of that process we have linked with major businesses just to to see what we can learn around how you a manage leads support and develop your people. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and in many ways, sometimes sport is is pretty sophisticated. Sometimes you think the grass is always greener, but you know sometimes the way. I, I guess, and the way staff can be managed and supported in their roles is just sport. Sometimes is pretty pretty good, and um, you always do learn the way. It's interesting. I think someone had tweeted recently around how Google were trying to study how to create successful teams, and the main outcomes of that that big read was actually they found like that emotional connection, um, really working around the person was the major things that they found out. And you're just like, well. You know, we're pretty good at that in sport. The athletes predominantly always tries to be at the centre of it. You try to coach and develop the person first, as opposed to them in their sport. So, you know, sometimes it flips both ways. If that makes sense, and you know, just even though we are main just cross sport sharing cross sport knowledge is where the real magic can be and, and one of the things that we always encourage is try to make that happen because there, there are lots of similarities there are a lot of similar problems uh within the sport and arena and and sometimes your your gains are just in sharing that knowledge with one another i mean i was i think i mentioned i was very fortunate to be at the leaders event in los angeles last week and give me a great insight in some terms of where U.S. sport is and its application of science, its application of tracking technologies. And there's some really smart people who do some really good stuff. And equally, you know, some people are really in the early early stages trying to implement really good programs. Um, but you could just see how quickly people were learning off one another by just sharing experiences. And often it isn't rocket science, but it's just that that moment for somebody that goes, yeah, you know, my what I was trying to do is exactly the right thing. And they got the confidence to go on and push it through. And um, so, like, just the, the strength of sport sometimes is, is serious, and I think you have to you have to sometimes recognize that sometimes the solutions are really close to you mm-hmm. so this may be quite early on in your kind of discovery of this but what are you seeing between the the kind of evolution of sports science in the u.s compared to what it's like in the uk um yeah i think i think this is internationally wide not just within the u.s but technology is often moving much at a much faster rate than we can implement and manage it so i think what what you're beginning to see is many of the player tracking technologies sports are using them in the u.s particularly because there's peer pressure they hear one team's using doing something so like we have to do it to be the same and what isn't driving the use of that is really good intelligent questions so what what you're getting is a vast collection of data 
without any direct application. So people are going fishing, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. You have to do that at times. But they're, they're going for fishing and they get to the end of a data collection period at the end of a season and just don't know what to do with the information. Well, they still have data because they haven't translated to quality information. So I, th I think the ability, what you see with really experienced practitioners that are able to really step back, really tight relationships, part of their team, part of their coaching team. They can ask really, really intelligent questions, which often direct the use of the right tools and technology. So the tail isn't wagging the dog. Dog. The performance on the pitch, on the core, is driving the work of the performance team. Um, so you're beginning, you know, that, that was just some early observations, and I'm generalizing here. There's obviously examples of really good stuff going on, but I, I think they will, that will flip quite quickly when people realize actually this, you know, how are we going to keep up with this technology? Well, in some ways you don't have to. If your process is good, if the questions you ask are related to what happens on the pitch and the court and the field or the track, um, you will therefore go to the right solutions that will help you answer those questions. You know, and success will still be judged by your intervention. Any of these tools and technologies are going to tell you something. You've still got to do something about it. And that's where the real competitive edge is in, in international sport. So when, so when it comes to technology, and obviously there's so many new products entering the market, what do you think is going to be the kind of thing that that comes to the fore over the next couple of years from the, the kind of things that you're seeing at the minute? Yeah, I, I, I think certainly in the consumer electronics show this year, huge, huge push around this whole uh, virtual reality, augmented reality space. So, you know, creating these different learning environments and what that may mean is – you're just going to see it coming through in a number of domains. It is beginning to happen in sport. Again, I think we've just got to be really cautious around this as it begins to – because it's the commercial products, which are relatively low cost, which means you can you can take a risk and try some things out, you know, for minimal interference in some ways. But equally, because we're dealing with skills and learning and there's a lot to do with education and practice, we've just got to be really cautious. We're not doing any damage, you know, teaching people the wrong things. So – this technology is going to be forefront and people are going to see its its capacity and opportunity. But I think, you know, the, the really good people will just take a step back and really think about what they're trying to achieve and whether this fits that. But, you know, but be ready. You know, your phones, phone technology and, and all of this, this, this capability is going to change the way we think, live and operate. So just to kind of move on slightly, um, I'd kind of put in my notes about finding an edge. Yeah, and I'd kind of use that to kind of jog my memory. So you're in a kind of team sport setting, you know, not a lot of people have got tons of cash to to kind of throw around. You're kind of trying to get an edge, whether it be in an academy setting to recruit kids to make them better and and not let them get swallowed up by a big academy, but you're wanting to create this edge to 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 bring them to your place or you know various different uh, examples. But what what would be your kind of process going forward to actually figure out how you're going to find that edge and what kind of differs, uh, how we differ from X club or Y club um, to be able to either, you know, uh, develop more players, attract more players, whatever it may be. What would yeah. be that process going forward? Um, this is going to sound a bit of a cliche, but I think sometimes it's um... – it's just about doing the basics better than anybody else. I think the really good programs that you see just have really, really good people who have great team dynamics, great cohesion, 
you know, a consistent goal. Everybody's hit, um, everyone's sort of behind it. It's, it's, it's bumpy. You know, every journey that you engage on, every performance environment should be bumpy. There should be a bit of chaos. Um, but ultimately, it comes down to the quality of that people and how well they work together. I, I've, you know, I guess, you know, 15, more than 15 years experience now across multiple sports. You just, you realize that that's the thing that makes a difference. Um, as good as all science, medicine, technology, innovation, and all those concepts can be, that only flourishes when all the other bits are right. So, you know, that comes down to clarity of vision, clarity of mission, you know, objectives, empowering your staff to have capabilities to, to get off and try stuff out um, and making it fun. You know, your environment's got to be fun. You want to be bouncing out of bed every day. So all those things are where your competitive edge is, um, but the things that are also hardest to develop, and that needs, you know, it just you just got to be on it every day, every day, every day to create the right environment, which enables, you know, not just athletes, but but staff, people, administrative staff just to flourish. And um seems a bit simple, but I think that that's where you can, you know, that's where the competitive opportunities are. So, so I, I hear that quite a bit with regards to getting the basic, doing the basics really well. So yeah. if, if so many people are, are kind of banging that drum, what is the reason for people complicating things? Why do people seem to be complicating things? Uh, I, like I mentioned a bit this, this case in the US, I think sometimes there's, there's peer pressure to always be demonstrating you're having an impact. Everybody's asked, what difference are you making? You know, and having hard evidence around how you do that. Um, I, I've been really intrigued by the concepts around storytelling and using storytelling as a way of communicating the type of things that you're doing. And in LA, there's a, um, I was really fortunate to meet a couple of people who work in high performance medicine in the US that are using storytelling to enable clinicians and real high technical people to tell that story. And I think that's a much more powerful way of how we can demonstrate impact. And therefore, there is less less pressure on us to just, you know, take the next greatest bit of technology, apply the next greatest intervention, because the secrets often aren't there. So I think we, what we've got to do is find better ways of actually communicating what we do as technical specialists that support coaches and support athletes. And, and maybe that, that is in through the power of storytelling, which, are, you know, is a way that you can articulate the journey that you've been on, which we know is organic. We know it's dynamic. We know it's never a straight line from A to B. And I think we have to think harder about that. So, yeah, certainly the pressures around demonstrating you as an individual having an impact, put that pressure on. And in the worst case, the type of situations we saw in Essendon in the past few years means that people are looking for these edges and crossing the line, and there isn't any need for it. I think what we have to think much smarter about is how we tell the stories of working in a high-performance team to create an environment and opportunity for that athlete to be the best they can. And, and, you know, I, th I think there are ways that we can do that. We just have to look a little bit harder, you know, and, and work with everybody in our community to, to convince them that that's the, that's the direction we can go. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily the, the kind of bit of technology or the, you know, the cash that you're going to spend. It's how that that is then communicated and, and fed back to athletes, coaches, support teams. Yeah. Do, do, do they have storytelling? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it's a really powerful way of, um, sharing emotion and the emotive part of what these journeys can be and that's what really connects people together um, you know and it, if people believe that's the way to go we'll avoid that chasing of the next greatest thing because the reality is there isn't the next greatest thing you know the next intervention 
collaboration isn't going to make the, the massive difference that you're thinking about. Um, it's taking part of the big pieces of the jigsaw. And I think I just think as, as practitioners across science, medicine, engineering, and coaching, being able to articulate these stories in a, you know, in a storytelling, much more emotive way could, could, could really help people understand the value of, of the, how the team is trying to support that individual. So just a couple of last things that I um, kind of want to pick your brain about was the um, was around building a team. Yeah. So I don't know if you've read a uh, just you, you mentioned Google a couple of times um, a book called Work Rules, which is the which is recommended to me, which is basically the head of HR at Google, and talks about yeah. how they um, basically how they recruit and how they yeah. manage their staff. And I just want to kind of get your I know it's very very broad. Just get your take on firstly recruiting staff. Um, and how you how you may go about that, um, and how you manage people in general. Yeah, um, I love that book, by the way. It's, it's great. It's pretty yeah. unbelievable. And for all your readers, I would also recommend, before I answer the question, um, read a book called Social Physics by a guy called uh, Pentland, Sandy Pentland from MIT's Media Lab. Um, so he's been looking at fundamentally looking at ways of of quantifying teams, um, quantifying the social networks of people. Um, it's really got my brain spinning around and how you can quantify the dynamics of teams. And they've done some really interesting stuff, not in sport, just demonstrating how those communication networks are often the best predictor of team success. So have a look at that one. Social physics, uh, Sandy Pendland, uh, really great read. Um, in, in terms of my sort of experience, I guess first thing I always look for is, is passion and enthusiasm. Um, you know, particularly in, in the teams that we work with, we've been very fortunate that we've also ha- we've had to be future looking. Um, but you know, th- those types of capabilities of of you know people being able to demonstrate, I guess that passion, but also I guess be risk taking but balance in some ways around that. So you know, people are really willing to try out ideas in a systematic way to further than knowledge um so those are the things that that i you know look for of course great technical knowledge but a great ability to apply that to the circumstances that they're presented with and you know that means you you may know all the literature in the best possible way better than anybody else but when you're presented with a particular situation with a sport with an athlete or coach how can you filter and extract that information or have a high quality network that you can apply in the right way to that circumstance so those are the real things that we typically look for. Um, in terms of people have managed to, you know, been fortunate enough to, to manage and support and, and be part of a team. I guess traditionally just just like to empower them to. I guess it's a bit of a cliche as well, but but to, I guess they call it commander's intent in the U.S. military, where you're pretty clear about what the outcome needs to be, but people have the flexibility, knowing that they're in quite an organic and dynamic environment, to find their way of getting there. Um, you know, and you give the freedom to constantly learn from that journey and that exercise. I think that's the way I like to manage and lead. Um, I like the concept of the commander's intent because the reality is when you're frontline and you're out there, you can't predict the circumstances you're going to face. But what you need are the resources and capability and support from your team to know that, you know, you may have to go back two steps, go forward three steps. You may have to go somewhere they haven't been before. And, you know, and, and in sport, that's that's the nature of the game you know you, you can plan to your heart's content but there's a great quote that says no no plan survives the first contact with the enemy so you need that flexibility you need the capability to adapt constantly to try to achieve the outcome which we set as commander's intent so for me that's 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 the the framework i like to use when you know when 
we're working together as a team. And, and not everybody can respond to that, but particularly in the field that we've worked with within research innovation, I think you need to give that type of framework to enable people to, to demonstrate their capabilities and achieve their best in, I guess, in meeting that intent that you've set out. So on in the in the this is just going off a tangent a little bit, but in the in that recruitment process, yeah, um, how are you how are you getting the people to demonstrate that they can be flexible in their approach? Given you know, like you said about knowing the research inside out, but yeah. being able to decipher that and actually apply it to a problem, how are you doing that to make sure you've got the right people? Yeah, so the focus is always on process. So like you may you just may. Um, some things that we've done in the past is just set challenges which you don't expect people to solve. But so you take an example from industry around, I don't know, you know, a, a car breaks down, these are the types of circumstances, how would you deal with it? So what you're really looking, looking for is, I guess, creativity in terms of the, how they create and generate ideas. But then the innovation element of it is how they take those ideas forward. So you just you're testing their process and the way of thinking and their ability to make things real. Um, so a lot of role plays, a lot of circumstances, a lot of situations that people wouldn't expect, um, but also around that a lot of personal time, a lot of trying to understand those individuals and what others think of them. Um, yes, it's typically go through quite a sort of detailed process. It's, you know, it can be two to three stages, but it helps you really understand how people think, um, but also what others think of them. Um, but the key thing is about their process of thinking and working on problems, and you know, deliberately presenting problems in that way, where they've got to they've got to solve it and understand it from the end user's perspective. Um, and often that's that's quite a challenge because you're not, not taught that in education. You know, you're taught everything in ologies, you're taught everything in a uh, I guess a very particular way. But you've that that in effect gives you your toolbox. It's when presented with a particular problem. It's not this paper told of this, this, and this. What are the circumstances for this individual? What's the context? How can I filter all of this information to help solve or you know or bring a new opportunity to the table? That that's going to work. I mean, the relationship part is is massively crucial as well. You, you can't underestimate. We call them soft skills, but you know all the communication element of of you know what I guess needed in the job. You know the the emotional intelligence, the EQ, all of those skills to be much more self-aware, much more self-organizing, so people make good decisions when under pressure. Cool. So just one one very last thing. Um, obviously, the people the people that listen to the podcast are kind of sports scientists, S and C coaches, coaches. Where should what what advice would you give them in the kind of avenues to look away from their kind of comfort zone to look for influence that may be able to help them to bring them back uh, into their environment? Um, good question. I think more than anything nowadays, I think one of our challenges what everybody has, regardless of your training or discipline, is the, um, the amount of data and information that now exists. And I guess you've got to try to put in place some really, really good filters. Um, Social media nowadays is somewhere that you'd always say, like, you've got to be on social media. You've got to be connected on Facebook, on Twitter, on, on Instagram. You've got to connect with a lot of the top quality scientists that, that are out there that are, you know, giving good insight and having good debate through these forums. So sometimes those provide, a, you know, a useful filtering environment. It's not the be all and end all. Um, but I guess you also have to try to get out your normal sporting space 
go and visit people in, in other environments that think a bit differently from yourself. If you get a chance to go into, you know, into F1, into America's Cup, into management schools, into all these other places, they're, they're just going to broaden your thinking a bit, I, I guess, a lot more from, from the way you've been educated and developed. That happens over time. It's, it's really simple stuff, but you just you, you have to be really proactive with this, these types of engagements. Um, go and see your colleagues in different sports. If you work in Olympic sports, get into pro sport. If you're in pro, pro sport, get into Olympic sport. They all work slightly differently for different reasons. Uh, get into extreme sports, you know, get and see what Red Bull do. I think the broader that you can shape your experiences, the better prepared you'll be. And you, for that, you just have to be really proactive. And that's the best pre professional development environment you can create um, is that engagement. So, yeah, it's just it comes down to that, really. It's not, not overly complex. Um, but over years, you find those networks build and build and build. And when you suddenly face with a, a challenge or problem that somebody's presented to you, you can always call on those networks. I think that the diversity of social network is, is massively important. Mm -hmm. Cool. So kind of leads on to my next question was where can people get in touch with you? <laughs> Should I say Twitter? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but uh, uh, just uh, yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter, Scott D UK, um, and I don't mind if people want to drop me an email directly. So that's drawer, as in a cupboard, D R A W E R at teamsky.com. Uh, get in touch. You know, happy to share experiences, happy to share learnings, happy to share where we've made massive mistakes. Um, you know, I, I'm on a I'm on a new journey now as well. So. Um, um, you know, I'd love people to comment and give feedback on this podcast as well of things that resonated and things that didn't. So everybody has different experiences. I think the more we share them, uh, the more we can learn from one another. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, hey. Cool. Well, um, I'll round up and just say thanks a lot for giving it me time um, and your insights. It's been uh, it's been fascinating. So um, thanks again, and uh, we'll speak soon. Great, and thanks for the opportunity because it's, uh, I guess, it's always good to, to talk these things through, and, and I hope people enjoy what we've had to discuss. No, pleasure, mate. Thanks very much. See you thanks. later. Thanks. See you. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode seventy-five of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Scott. Just before I let you go, uh, there is number four, so episode four of the Pacey Performance Webinar Series with Sophia Nymphius. So that's going on later in the month, but if you are interested in Sophia's uh, webinar on change direction and agility in sport, you can go to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash Sophia. So check that out if you are interested, uh, it'd be great to see you. I've already got plenty booked on already, um, so make sure you're one of, them, uh, one of them guys that books on if you are interested. So thanks again for all the uh, support so far. Uh, and I will speak to you in episode 76.